Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a rainy Saturday morning in the mountains of Utah. A quick reminder that as of release of this episode, we are just seven weeks away from the launch of my new epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning. Pre-orders are a huge part of the ultimate success of a book, so if you're planning to pick it up and can do so early, I'd be very grateful if you did. This episode does get a tiny bit sweary, so if you're my mother or have small children around, maybe skip this one or listen later. We also had some major internet hiccups and lost all the video as well as the last 15 minutes of our conversation. Big thanks to our sound engineer who has stitched it back together the best he could. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is epic fantasy author Brian Stavely. Brian is known for his award-winning chronicles of the Unhewn Throne, the first book of which was The Emperor's Blades, which came out in 2014. My fellow Brian and I talk about the solitary life of a writer, coming up with the book titles, living in the countryside, and the challenges presented by different books in a series. We get into Brian's past life as a poet and teacher, and his love of writing characters who are constantly bettering themselves. We also discuss our doppelganger careers, from sharing an agency to winning or being nominated for all the same awards. Enjoy my conversation with Brian Stavely. I think we only have hung out maybe once, and I think it was a weekend at maybe Phoenix Comic Con. Phoenix Comic Con, for sure. Yeah, like 2018 or something, 2017, 16, 15, I don't know, ages ago. Yeah, ages ago. You haven't been getting out like during COVID or anything, huh? You've just been hunkered down? No, we've been totally hunkered. I mean, we uh, kind of started opening things back up after we got uh, vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. uh, Last spring-ish, late spring. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we started having people over, you know, relatives over and things like that, but we didn't travel. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously the, the new waves shut it all down again. And, and we're now just like finally going, okay, we're getting ready. We're going to be going to France in like five or six weeks. Oh, great. Hopefully everything will go smoothly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the week, um, like the week that everything went to shit when it first broke, you know, back in the spring of what, 2020, I had a trip to, to New York city planned with my son and everything. And we can't, we canceled it all. And I just sort of rescheduled that for this month. And I, I feel very superstitious about it. Like, oh no, like I've, I've opened, you know, the portal to the demons by scheduling that trip again. Right. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm knocking on wood. I'm doing all the stuff, all the superstitious stuff in the hope that, uh, <laughs> that it's okay. I, I feel like we all are, right? Like yeah, it's just yeah. you know, constantly going, okay, please don't screw up. Please don't lose another year of my life, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How has it been? You know, you're in Salt Lake City, right? Yeah. So like I, I live in the middle of nowhere. So for me, I feel like the impact has been less than it is for folks who live in more urban places. What's it been like for you? I mean, I don't know. It's Utah. So most of the yeah. people don't really believe in COVID anyways. Okay. Um, right. Yeah. It uh, and, and the thing is, is that we live in, I mean, we, we're like 45 minutes outside of Salt Lake. So it's not oh, okay. super urban it's i mean it's the suburbs yeah um we live like i'm like literally like 100 yards from a trailhead up into the mountains so what canyon are you near like there's little cottonwood and big cottonwood like which the that those canyons are up in salt lake county i'm down in utah county okay so gosh uh battle creek is just right down the road okay yeah yeah so you're you're further south Um, okay i see yeah yeah Yeah. like kind of down is it American Fork is down there, maybe. Yeah, I live just a few miles from American Fork Canyon. Okay, cool. Yeah, all of my all of my Utah geography is based around rock climbing. So, <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, I bet. Rock climbing and skiing are like I'm not asking like what town you're in. I'm like what canyon are you in? <laughs> yeah, those are the big the, those are the big like tourist things here. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, no, I know. You know what? Honestly, I we've lived here for six years now, and the biggest pet peeve I have about my little town is that I live in this little town called Pleasant Grove, and it was originally called battle creek i could live in battle creek wouldn't that be like the coolest address it's significantly significantly cooler than pleasant grove yeah yeah they really but at some point they changed it mm, that's that's unfortunate yeah yeah well i mean you could you right. could mount a campaign get it changed back i could but then yeah. i'd have to like change my address and that's just not worth the work mm-hmm. yeah that's true there's you know just here in town um couple friends of mine live on a road that they, they themselves put the road in and there's only two houses on the road but for like 911 purposes or whatever the county said hey your road actually needs a name it needs an official name and i really this was like when fury road had come out mad max and i was like you have to call your road fury road and they didn't they called it something like you know moose grove or i was so disappointed just so so disappointed i mean in a vacuum moose grove is a fantastic road name but compared to Fury Road, it's it's, it's okay. I mean, it's all right. It's not objectionable. But like, you could have named that road anything, right? They could have named it literally. They could have named it the Highway to Hell. Like, <laughs> there's so many options. And I just feel like if you go with like Moose Grove or you know Sunny Acres or <laughs> I mean, I don't know, just felt like an opportunity squandered. Right. There's not many people are going to get the chance to name their road in in their lives. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Or, or name much of anything, right? You know, I mean, you get to name like a dog or a cat. If you get those, you get to name a kid. Yeah. Um, that's kind of it. <laughs> I, I feel like if I was given the chance to name a road that it would probably end up something so insane that everyone after yeah. me would be really annoyed. Yeah. Well, so actually I take it back. We also get to name books, right? We get to title books and I suck at that. So maybe I don't need the responsibility of a road. Well, <laughs> titling books is different though, because like it's a whole marketing thing yeah. and yeah. there's there's like so much involved. I, I, I don't know. I've always hated titling books. Like my very first book, Promise of Blood, I remember my editor going like our one of our first conversations she said that's okay but we'll think of something better and then we just never did <laughs> and we ended up with promise of blood now was promise of blood your title or somebody else's title it, it was mine okay yeah how many of your books have you titled yourself um all of them i all don't think them. anybody's oh. yeah nobody's done and i like i've had titles suggested but never aggressively um it's always been it's always been Hey, send me another five titles and we'll yeah. pick one of those. And, um, you know, that kind of thing. It's never been, you know, yeah, you, this sucks here. Use this one. I, I'm one for five. Really? Yes. <laughs> and I don't object. I'm not, that's not a complaint that I have. I just really, I'm terrible at, at titling books. So, uh, the last mortal bond, which was, which my third book, um, was my, uh, that was my title, but the emperor's blades, Providence of Fire, Skull Sworn, and The Empire's Ruin. None of those were mine. So how does that conversation go? Is that like, is, do, those, do those come from your editors, from your agent? Uh, my, usually it's me and my agent, my editor. The three of us will be in a, in a little huddle. Um, and I, I, what always happens is I have these names that I'm very fond of that are kind of like artistic. You know, my, like, I don't know if you know this, like my background was from, I came with this from poetry, right? I did like my undergrad and MFA in poetry. So I always come up with these names that like probably would be great for a collection of poems. Yeah. Um, and my editor and agent are like, at first they were gentle and they were like, well, you know, now they're just like, no, that's dumb. Um, nobody's going to know what your book is about. Nobody's going to know what genre it is. Like, no, just stop. Um, yeah. So now I just kind of send them words. I'm like, here are some words that like maybe you would like to use. Um, and, and, and I have to say, I don't object. I, this is not me uh, bitching and moaning about being overruled. I think it's very, it, it's healthy that they're overruling me because People would look at, at at my titles and think it's like about you know you know a, a eighty two year old man gardening uh, in his final year <laughs> of having cancer or something right like they don't scream at, um, <laughs> leaves falling in autumn yeah yeah I mean really that's that's kind of the direction that that's the direction that I go so it's probably a blessing that I'm not uh, I don't get 
I don't get the final say in these things. Although actually the next book, the one that's come, the one I'm working on now, we have a title for it, and I'm, uh, that was me actually. Uh, so it's, I'm about to be, when that one comes out. Hey, very nice. I'll be, uh, I'll be uh, two for six, one out of three. So my <laughs> average is creeping back up. Yeah. Oh, that's, you're working on it then. How um, are you allowed to say what it is or when it's supposed to be out? I can't say what the title is and I can't say when it's going to be out because I don't know. It's not done yet. Uh, yeah. I, got, I, I used to be fast or faster anyway, fast-ish. And then like COVID just bulldozed my productivity. I mean, I have a, I have a nine-year-old, soon to be 10-year-old and it's like, his school is wonderful. His teachers are great. They're all working their asses off, but it's just any given week. It's a grab bag about whether there's school or, um, you know, and, and not even just COVID, but like snow days. We live in a place where there's only one paved road in town. So we have mud days where it's like no school tomorrow. The roads are impassable. You are seriously in the boonies. Yeah. 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 My road last year, like people came and put signs like picket picket signs in the road that said, fuck this road. They were so angry because you could like cars were just getting stuck. They were bogged down the mud. You couldn't get through. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. That's I'm lucky. I live, I live like a, maybe a little bit, about a half a mile from the end of a paved road. So I can park my car up there during mud season and just walk up to the car. And so I don't have to, for the worst weeks of mud season, I don't really have to deal with it. Like, I'll be honest. There's part of me who just doesn't believe that places like that exist in like the u.s except for like appalachia (laughs) oh it's all of vermont i mean it's uh and i i I don't know i've never been to yeah oh you should come some it's a it's a lovely state just don't come in mud season (laughs) um (laughs) yeah it's i I mean there was an article in uh, on vpr or something the other day about mud season because everybody's got like a theory about the science of mud season, right? Every year around March, April, the the roads get bogged down and people start parking and walking. And then like the theories come out about like, well, is it because there was too much snow or not enough snow or it was cold or it was warm or it thawed or it didn't thaw? Of course, I have my own theories, but um, oh yeah, it's like, it's the topic of conversation for like, you know, two or three weeks. Um, And people (laughs) walk a lot further than me. There are people who are walking like two miles to get to their cars. Because you just can't get Dang. you can't get in and out. So um, is is Vermont just really that sparsely populated that they're that they just sparse. don't pave as much yeah. of their percentage of roads? So it's um, you know it's a little state. It's small, um, but there's only six hundred thousand people in the state, and the majority of those people are concentrated in one county. They're up up in the northwest where Burlington is, which is the biggest city. Yeah. So most of the rest of the state is just these towns that like Marlboro is a town of less than a thousand people. Um, and there's tons of, tons of little towns like that. So it's just not really economical. You know, my road is probably about three miles long and there's like eight houses on it. So it's just not economical to pave and maintain a a paved road. Uh, when when you can maintain the dirt road is cheaper. Um, so yeah. And you get used to it, you know, it's just like anything else, like, you know, like snow people who, who are, who live in the North are used to to winter weather and driving in winter weather. And this is just one more, one more little treat to add to that. (laughs) You're kind of like an outdoorsy guy, right? You, you love that kind of like outdoorsy feeling. Yeah. That's why I'm here. I mean, it's not, I, yeah. So I don't, I, I I can't complain. I mean, I, it's all, you know, there's life has trade-offs and one of the trade-offs is like, you can't always drive on the roads, but the the woods and the mountains are right there. So if you want to go skiing or mountain biking, it's there it is. See, I, I was I was quite outdoorsy as a late teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I grew up on five acres in northeast Ohio. So very it looked very much like what behind you, like the sure. you're looking out your window. Yeah. And then uh and then uh arthritis and overeating destroyed my body and I, I, I don't do outdoorsy anymore. <laughs> you know, it is such a crapshoot. Like I have, you know, a bunch of friends who are all struggling with different things now. One guy's like thirty and his his like lower vertebrae are destroyed and Ooh. it's just like bodily health is just it's a roll of the dice, man. It's, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I sometimes complain about feeling, you know, I'm 45 and I'm like, ah, oh, I can't do this or that hurts. I have a hernia now actually. Um, but I got, I got, I count myself lucky that I am still able to get out and move around and do stuff. So, yeah, I, um, I was just, I was reading your bio and I was like, I just found it really funny that you put splitting wood in your bio. 
Um, but like when I was like 17, I would go out and split firewood for an entire, you know, Saturday afternoon. And honestly, I found it super cathartic. It's very enjoyable. Isn't it? It's, uh, it's like the opposite of writing books, right? (laughs) You can sit down and like write for a day. And at the end of the day, you've actually made negative progress, right? Where you like took apart a whole chapter that you thought worked and actually the chapter doesn't work. And then you decide to throw it away. And that, that's what you got for your eight hours. If you go to like mm-hmm. deal with firewood for eight hours, you're going to have a stack of fucking firewood and it's going to be beautiful. Um, and I love that. Yeah. About it. <laughs> well, and it's, it's like the best feeling, like learning how to properly stack firewood is like the best feeling. It, it feels so nice because everything's organized and looks good. And one thing that doesn't happen when you're splitting wood, the wood never just drops you, right? The wood's never like, oh, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> The beauty of, of wood management. I know that that sounds like the beauty of wood management sounds sarcastic, but like learning how to properly stack firewood in a very mm-hmm. nice straight line. Oh yeah. And then you get that, you get, you get eight feet high and you're able to walk up it and over it without any wobble. It's yeah. like such a good feeling. Yes. You feel so accomplished. Absolutely. I mean, I do a lot of trail work around here, build, building trails and maintaining trails and I'm always like, don't just throw those in the woods. We got to like buck these into nice neat lengths and we're going to stack them between these trees. And I just feel like a, a wood pile just in itself is a work of art, you know? Yeah. Even if we're never going to haul that wood out of the woods to use, I want it like neat. <laughs> yeah. You find two trees that are six yeah. feet apart and you exactly. just have a nice little stack. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I think it looks, I, I think it looks like art um, when it's, when it's nice and really stacked. So yeah. Well, yeah. And and you see some people do art with wood piles. Yes. Where they'll have like they'll yep. do like the different colored woods and mm-hmm. like it'll be like the face of a bear or something. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beyond. That's a step beyond me. I don't. I don't get to that level. But uh, yeah, I just it's something you could aspire to. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, if you know if the writing thing doesn't work out, I can always just go into uh, professional artistic wood stacking. Yeah, I mean. From what I've heard of Vermont so far, that sounds like it's probably an industry. There's there's plenty of wood here that needs to be stacked. More more than enough. <laughs> no, I love that. Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. You do like you do like lots of like the kind of what are they called like the the, the races where you like the all terrain sort of yeah. you know running up mountains and stuff like that. You love that kind of stuff. There's a lot of running up mountains. Yeah, um, yeah. So I do. I mean, a variety of things. I do long trail races and uh, also something called adventure racing, which is like um, sort of like wilderness triathlons. There's like mountain biking and paddling and, and running, but it, it's all around navigation. So mm-hmm. what happens at the beginning of the race is they give you a bunch of maps. Let's say you're doing a 24 hour race. They'll give you like five or six maps and you, there's checkpoints all over these maps. Right. And you have to go find as much as you can find. It's like, it's like a big, horrible Easter egg hunt. Um, and uh, I love that element of it because I'm not really very fast. So if I'm going to go run like a trail marathon, I'm not going to beat. I'm going to beat a couple people and a bunch of people are going to beat me. And that's just kind of it. But uh, adventure racing, it's like anything can happen, right? Because you, it's all about the strategy and what order are you going to get the things? And can you navigate between the things? And how are you handling your nutrition? And you've been up for 48 hours and, you know, like it's all just uh, there's just a lot more to it. So it's more of it's like more of an old man's game, you know. I can I can still kind of finagle yeah. finagle things here, but I can't finagle just in like a straight up, you know, whatever twenty five k. It's like Boy Scouts racing. Yeah, yeah, and it's fun. It's exciting every single time. You know, there are these flags, these orange and white flags that you're looking for out in the woods, 
and every single time you find one, it's exciting, right? It's like finding an Easter egg. Yeah. Um, you're just like, oh yeah, we got that one. Sweet. So yeah, I love it. It's uh, it's great, great sport. And, and there's a lot of ways you can do it. You, there's winter ones where it's like Nordic skiing and snowshoeing. So, you know, a lot of, uh, sort of a lot of variation, but right. um, yeah, so all of that, just, just, I like to just be outside out there with my friends doing stuff. That's, that's pretty. Oh, that's very cool. Now tell me a little bit about the background with poetry. Cause I, I saw that you were a teacher for a while. Yeah. Now where, where does all that kind of start and come from? So when I was in college, I was, I was interested in writing poetry and wrote a lot of poetry, wrote a lot of my own poetry and, and started doing translation, poetic translation. And, um, then in grad school, that's what I studied. Um, I did my, um, my MFA at BU and then, uh, but you can't really, you can't really have a job writing poetry. That's not, there's no such job as that. Um, so I, I started teaching high school, which I loved. It was a great job. And I did that for maybe a dozen years, uh, mostly at one school in the Northeast. And I taught a bunch of different stuff, um, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, but then I, I really wanted to take a stab at writing and I thought, well, I, I should fantasy had always been a thing that I read and loved growing up. And so I was like, I'll try, I'll try and write a fantasy novel. How hard can it be? Um, very hard was the answer as it turns out, uh, as you know. And, um, <laughs> so yeah, then, then, you know, I, I spent like all the, you know, five, six years writing the first draft of the emperor's blades. And now, now I do that full-time. <laughs> yeah. That's very cool. Do you miss, do you miss teaching? I, I love my life right now. I love the way it is. I can't imagine teaching right now. I just, you know, I have a ton of spare time, um, not a ton of spare time, but I have the freedom and the flexibility to spend time with my son, which is like hugely important, especially now that he's like old enough, we can, you know, do all kinds of stuff, go have adventures. But writing is so solitary. It's just, um, you know, you get up, I, we, I hang out with the kid, we make breakfast, shoot the shit, and then I bring him to school. And then it's like, there I am with the computer all day. And I do really miss like both my colleagues and my students from teaching. I miss um, the good stuff, even the bad stuff. My friends who, who work, at, you know, in offices or at companies or at schools, I'm always like, what's like the gossip? Like who's mad at who or what's going on? Just because I, I, I get none of that, none at all. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I have, I have all of this like secondary office gossip that I try to keep up on. Um, so I miss all of that, but right now doing this is, feels like the right, the right thing, the right place to be in my life. Yeah. What did you do before you started writing full time? Uh, nothing. I was, I went from nothing. I went from student to working a series of dead end jobs. Okay. Um, I was a fry cook for like six months and I was a, uh, yeah, I worked for a collection agency, uh, just a manning the phones yeah. for yeah. like something like four to six months. Why do you stick with that? That sounds awesome. That sounds really satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, that was so soul sucking. And the thing was, is that I worked the collection agency I worked for was like one of the nice ones where they uh -huh. literally like they literally just called people, and it was yeah. you know it wasn't a bad thing, it wasn't good, yeah, but it was also soul sucking, just sitting yeah. there waiting for, with a headset on, doing the auto dialer constantly going on, right, 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 yeah. It was just man, that kind of but like that kind of thing, yeah, like. It just a few months of it just destroyed me yeah. like kind of emotionally yeah. and so yeah i it it took me years to recover from that kind of crap job yeah. once i finally got like was my career really took off as an author yeah and uh but yeah i think i was 26 i want to yeah i don't remember how old i was when promise of blood came out mm -hmm. We're like offset by like one year, right? Like Promise of Blood came out like a year before The Emperor's Blades, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's uh, something I wanted to talk about because you and I, we, so we share an agency um, oh. and uh, our agents are colleagues. Oh, that's right. I've forgotten that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like our careers are close enough together in terms of what we have done yeah. uh, that it comes up in conversation at least every other time I talk to my agent. Oh, really? Yeah. Like they, I, apparently they refer to us as the Bryans. Uh, well, your agent must be happy that you have kept writing books at the same pace. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I got the good productive Brian. Glad I'm not dealing with Stavely over there. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I, I, not for lack of me trying to back off because it's so much work. Um, no, I'm, I'm driven by the terror of having to work as a fry cook again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally. Cause also did promise of blood win the, um, the Gemmel award for, or something. Yeah. Yeah. So Emperor's waves. yeah, we, uh, I was, I was looking this morning, uh, and, and you won, uh, I, all the awards that I won, uh, or was nominated for my first year in 2014, you won in 2015 or were nominated. for. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'm remembering that now. Yeah. Cause I remember I was like, I was like, this is the guy that I need to keep my eye on because I can maybe see in the crystal ball a little bit, like some things that might be like just worth keeping an eye on or being aware of. Yeah. Um, so that's so funny. Yeah. So yeah, you've been go yeah. So since twenty thirteen was your first mm-hmm. your first novel, yeah. And how many books do you have now? Yes, um, oh, I'm a number seven's coming out. Yeah. in like uh, two months. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and you're 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 working on number six, right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm working on number six. Yeah, um, and they just keep getting longer, man. It's like shit. Every time, like I was chatting with my girlfriend, she was like, you got to find, you got to make your book shorter. You get, you get paid almost the same amount of money for a shorter book, but I don't know. Uh, how, how many words was the last one? 305,000. Holy crap. I was going to commiserate with you, but I, I've only just cracked the 200. Yeah. Uh, so you're way out. You're <laughs> no wonder you're taking longer on books. I know. I don't know. Yeah. I just... I mean, I do like a big, a big honking book if it's handled well and it can maintain its momentum. Mm-hmm. I, that's something I appreciate. But I just, from a career point of view, it's like, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to write. I mean, you can write the same story, right? But just break it differently. We actually looked at trying to, yeah. trying to break up The Empire's Ruin for that reason, but there wasn't a good way to do it. So, and I think with epic fantasy, both as the author and then as you know, knowing readers, because we read this stuff, yeah, um, like there's an expectation of it being a monster book, like a yeah. big yeah. kind of chonker that you know you kind of you dedicate a couple of weeks to slogging through. Exactly. But and slog slog yeah, sounds bad there fun. because slog in an epic fantasy sense is a good thing, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there is stuff you can do with that larger scope right i mean that's that's the fun of it is that you can it's like you know it's like writing a symphony versus um you know just like a little piece of chamber music or something um there's just you you can have a lot more instruments and a lot more uh a lot more stuff going on yeah so i enjoy that as a writer trying to 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 manage all of that um but i enjoy it a little too much i think because like this book is on track, I think, to be even longer. So, I mean, eventually they're going to yell at me and pull the plug. Like, there, there's like a limit to how big a book is that you can bind, I think. Right. And then they'll get like, it, the the bigger of an author you are, the more leeway you have. Like, like they're never going to say no to whatever Brandon Sanderson turns in. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then like, you know, kind of you go, the step under that, they're, they're probably not going to say no to what Brent Weeks turns in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then like, you know, you get the, you, each down step, you get to us and you're like, they're going to say no soon. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Eventually. Well, I, I mean, I don't really quite understand it. I know there was like some discussion with the empire's ruin, which is the most recent one, the longest one. They're like, I don't know. This like, is this, can we even bind this book? You know, you can always make the pages thinner. You know, there's stuff you can do. There's some really long books out there like the Bible, but, yeah. but you start to run into like that weird thin paper they publish Bibles with. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what I'm aiming for. Just get that paper, like that rice paper or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see where it leads. Um, maybe I'll find a way to rein this one in, but it's certainly not looking that way. <laughs> I, um, I, I see, I was going to ask you about an aspect. This was a, um, a question that came from my street team that we were talking about this morning, which was, um, they were talking about how much they loved your, the, the way that you handle, I said training montages, but they said, Mm -hmm. it's not just montages. It's like whole chapters, you know, dedicated to training and, and this idea of characters, uh, perfecting themselves mentally and physically. And I was fascinated by that because it's something that I have never been able to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and it frustrates the crap out of me because I know it's a staple of epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I've never been able to write it because it always feels like it's, it just cuts the feet out from underneath my pacing. Uh-huh. And I was really curious about your approach to that type of thing. Yeah. Well, it's a good question. I think that my fondness for it is, is you don't need to dig very deep. I mean, I do a lot of training. Uh, you know, I was just out for a hard run today. This is like my hard run of the week today. And so there's a lot of material to draw on just in terms of like literally having run up and down a lot of mountains and, you know, having run for whatever, like 48 hours and stuff. So that, but I think that's the surface level. I don't think that's actually necessary to write that stuff. I think what is interesting to me about it more than like the, the physical nuts and bolts of what's happening is what's happening inside the character obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's always the thing, right? What's interesting is what's happening inside the character. That's always what it comes down to. And, um, you know, if you think about like a training montage from a movie, I always love them because there's cool music and you see awesome stuff happen, but they almost happen too quickly for me because it's sort of like, okay, this person was lousy at that. And now they're good at it. Like two minutes later. Yeah. And I'm like, all of the most interesting growth in the story happened in those two minutes. And now we're going to get like, a 45 minute set piece battle at the end of the movie, which I'm usually less interested in because nobody's really growing there. That's just like the, that's the outcome, right? That was determined by what happened during the training montage, which, which happened so quickly. So um, I always think that that's where the, the bulk of the material where the character is becoming the person that they need to become in order to do that final battle stuff. And I'm always like, Friends of mine are always giving me hell because I often will skip over the climactic fight scenes because by the time I get to it, I feel like all the pieces are in place. It's like you've played the chess game. The outcome is, is it, you know, it's our, we already know what it is. And so I'll either write it or it's really fast. And my friend's like, no, readers want, you promised them that they were going to see this character fight this character and you can't just have it happen for half a page, Right. You need to give them the awesome scene. Yeah. And so I will go back and I'll write it. And I'll get into those scenes. But those are not my, um, they don't come naturally to me. Like on the first draft, I'm just sort of like, oh yeah. And then of course it, it concludes that way. Like the ending of a movie yeah. that I love, um, the second Kill Bill, you know, which is the one that has the ending in it. Um, and this is a spoiler for people who have not seen Kill Bill. But um, you know, the final battle, the final fight after a movie, two, uh, two movies that have been all about cinematic, gruesome, spectacular, long choreographed fights. The final fight takes maybe 20 seconds. Right. Mm. I don't know if you remember it. Do you remember it? I, I never saw I, I never saw the second one. I saw the um, first one, but I never saw the second one. The first one, I think, is totally disposable. Um, I thought it was all right, like some cool fight scenes, whatever. I never saw it twice. The second one is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting because I, yeah. I had the same impression of the first one. And so I just yeah. never watched the second one. Well, the first one, honestly, I think it's all the fights that you didn't really need, like all the stuff that could have just been cut. Um, the second one has the cool training montage where you learn how, um, what's her name? Beatrice Kiddo, how she becomes so badass. And mm-hmm. it has the, it really has the through line of the plot that the first one is missing. And yeah, the, so anyway, the final fight scene, 20 seconds and it's over, maybe 15 seconds. I mean, it's just like done. And I loved yeah. it so much um, because in my mind, all of the interesting stuff had happened earlier in the movie. So when I'm thinking about the, the development of the characters, um, I'm thinking about all that stuff that happens in the grind, you know, beforehand and in the struggle. And so like it, and that's, you know, in my first book, uh, in the Emperor's Blades, that was really, it was really kind of explicit training montages. Like we have the military stuff and we have the monk stuff, but in the most recent book, it's kind of, it's, de- it's, it's developed into something new. So one of the main characters, Gwenna, she's this soldier, but she's a soldier who, who fucks up really badly in the first, um, chapter of the book and people, friends of hers get killed and, um, her training montage isn't really that. It's like a depression and anxiety montage for like two thirds of the book or her dealing with the yeah. repercussions of this. And I, I was so scared writing that. I was like, people are going to hate this. This is like the opposite of what people come to epic fantasy for. She's like just depressed and unable to do stuff and like out of shape and, you know, unable and unwilling to be the person she was. But 
I was really grateful that it was really well received. Um, but that was, I was tapping into the same stuff there as I was in the more traditional training montages, except instead of like, Hey, look at this character learning how to use a sword. Look at this character learning how to run up a mountain. It was like, look at this character getting out of bed again, which is like the triumph that she needs to have on that particular day. Right. Look at this character not doing suicide. <laughs> See, I, I feel like my whole my whole generation like totally would relate to that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't I didn't know how it would go over, but it was the story that I was trying to write it the other way and it just wasn't working. This was like the way it needed to go. And um, yeah, people are actually a woman on Twitter today was just like she was reading um, the new book. And there's a word that I invented in the new book for basically like just like chronic dread and anxiety. But it's like, you know, an in world, Mm -hmm. an inward. Yeah, she says, uh, my current escape is Brian Stavely's The Empire's Ruin, going through very uncomfortable empathy with one of his main characters, Gwenna. She has learned a word for a, quote, nameless, reasonless, implacable fear. At least I have a label for it now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like a different kind of uh, a different kind of training montage, I guess, one that's more explicitly emotional. But they've all been emotional at the root of it or they wouldn't be interesting. It would just be people it would just be superheroes running around. And I get kind of bored of superheroes running around at a certain point. See, it's it's interesting, the kind of the the difference there, because I have always tended I've always been drawn towards characters that are in their prime or past it. Yeah. And and they've already learned all that stuff. Yeah. They're already fantastic at what they do. Mm-hmm. But they're also absolutely damaged by having been a soldier for 20 years or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I see I so I I've always jumped past, you know, kind of that early life and yeah. and learning to do what makes them good and uh and I don't know and and something I've like I said earlier, I've always struggled with this idea of the training montage because I feel like it just destroys my uh, narrative momentum. Mm-hmm. And and I'm working in in book two of the current series. I I realize that in book one, there's this really intricate magic system that I just completely kind of skimmed over because I was trying to keep up the good book one pacing. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna change that in book two. I'm gonna stop. And I'm really going to dig into some of this stuff. And honestly, I'm struggling with it. Like, I, I want to put mm-hmm. these scenes in of learning how to do cool things that the characters don't know about. And I just, I feel like every time I try to do it, it just, I grind to a halt. How do the characters feel about the stuff that they're doing? They, 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 they are interested. They want to do it. But they also have a million other things that... Because there's like the giant war going on. Um, there's these conspiracies that they're trying to discover or becoming involved with. And and there's so much else going on that in my head, it's always like, okay, this character can't stop and take a couple of days to learn how to do something cool with his magic. What are the stakes if they don't learn the magic? I guess at the moment it is almost universe set dressing learning the magic better Uh that will pay off later on when they do cool stuff with it yeah i guess in my in my world's magic tends to be this tool that could be used or couldn't Uh you know like uh like like a lot of epic fantasy authors like magic has to be the thing that solves all the problems like that's that's kind of the goal that you go for and i've i don't know i i guess sometimes that that works out that way but i I often want the characters to be smart enough to solve the problem, um, determined enough to solve the problem. And magic has only, you know, is incidental to what actually happens. Well, I think then I think that's that sounds like why it's messing with the with the flow, because if it's not important, if it's not crucial, it doesn't need to be in there. And it sounds like it's not like when Luke, you know, goes to Dagobah and Empire Strikes Back. It's a total digression, right? Mm -hmm. It's exactly what you're talking about. He's leaving the war. He's leaving his friends. He's leaving every bit of action that we were interested in from the first movie. But you understand as a viewer that it's absolutely crucial that he gets some kind of handle on the force or everything is going to go to shit, right? Yeah. And so the stakes are, are really important there. If it was just like, hey, there's like a million ways to take down the emperor, emperor and the empire. And probably the force isn't even that important. But it's kind of cool. Like, no one would want to go to Dagobah. They'd be like, fuck that. Yeah. Let's go. Let's have some more light space battles. So, like, I don't know. If if it is if it is secondary, if it is non-essential, I don't know that you can find a way to include a long training montage about it that's going to feel 
propulsive or exciting. Even if you write that scene really well, right? Even if you even if you handle the material really well, it will feel kind of extraneous, I think. Right. So it's just it's it's a difference between the magic the, the magic or or whatever you're training for in general. Yeah. being absolutely essential to solving the problem of, you know, whatever yeah. the climax of the book is kind of thing right. versus being just part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I never really thought about it that way, but that makes total sense. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing, I think. It's a thing I struggle with with a lot of epic fantasy. I write a lot of chapters, and then I'm like, shit, nobody needs this chapter. Like, I thought that they needed it because, like, some stuff happens here. But then I'm like, well, what would happen if I just told the reader that suddenly we're now we're in a new city? They got there. Yeah. Right? They, sp- they spent two hard weeks traveling through mud and rain and arrived in Olan tired, right? Boom, we're there. And I've all, I, in, in the meantime, I've spent like, I've written two chapters of them traveling through the mud and rain and like some stuff happens, but I don't know, like figuring out what goes in and what goes out is hard for me. I, I, I get rid of so much stuff. And I, but I do think in the end, it comes down to what is essential to the plot and what is not. I don't know. I haven't figured it out, obviously. <laughs> 
but honestly, as an adult, like if I, yeah, I, I have lots of other hobbies. There's video games I want to play. There's, yeah. you know, things, there's all these. I see you do all the cooking. You, Yeah. I, I like to cook. There's, yeah, yeah. I, I like to do a lot of stuff, but even like cooking, if, if my wife loved cooking, I would never cook a day in my life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, because it's just, you know, it's something I, I engage with and I enjoy, but if somebody else was there to do it, or if, yeah. if I just, if I could afford a chef, I don't know, like, yeah. Yeah. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't do it anymore, probably. And writing's kind of like that for me. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's not something that I have to do. And I'm always a little maybe baffled by people that are, are driven so hard that they, mm-hmm. that they only, they can't, they have to write. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was, I, you know, I, I'm usually like the least in tune person with anything that's going on in the industry or in publishing, or I'm like, I don't know what's happening, but I did manage to hear about the whole Brandon Sanderson Kickstarter thing. And just the, the drive of him is just astounding to me, just astounding to, mm-hmm. to produce so much so regularly. I am just fascinated by it. Uh, I just like, actually I've, I was sort of picked up on this in my new book. There's, there's two characters. They're both elite soldiers, kind of like the Navy SEALs of my world. And um, they come from really different backgrounds. One of them was like a really sort of desperately poor farm girl from the North who like had to learn archery so she could like put food on the table for her family or they would starve. And the other was this, you know, super pampered. She grew up like in this rich household of merchants in the South. And the one who grew up poor is always looking at the one who grew up rich and like, why did this woman learn how to do anything? Like, how, why did she ever get, you know, she, she's risen to the high, both of them have risen to the highest level possible for, for what they do. But the one of them is like, I wouldn't have done a damn thing if like I had cooks and servants and stuff. Like she just doesn't understand where the motivation comes from. Mm-hmm. I feel that way a little bit sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I I definitely feel a little bit that way. It's, you know, like sometimes like like you mentioned Brandon, like like I look at Brandon sometimes and I think if if I if I was making 3 4 5 million dollars a book, yeah. you'd get one book out of me every 5 or 10 years. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like I have so many hobbies, I have so yeah. many things I'd want to do. Um, you, you would, you would have to fly a helicopter to find me. Yeah. <laughs> like I would just disappear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I guess, I mean, I do think that the consistency is a thing that allows you to make the bigger bucks as a writer, right? It's hard when you disappear, you know, for years at a time and then come back with a book. It's just hard for people to, to, to want to invest and to want to keep up with you. Whereas, you know, I know a lot of readers, like friends of mine who are like, you know, I really don't like this one writer, but uh, she's sort of automatic. She puts out two books a year. They're kind of mindless pleasure. And I will buy all of them because I'm just in the zone for that. And two times a year, I want to read more about whatever this, whoever this character is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting perspective from readers that they're like, in a way, they are the super fans because they're saying they're going to read everything this person ever writes. But they're also totally indifferent super fans. They're like, yeah, it's all right. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird comparison about what readers value. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got, you've got all the readers who do, they value the consistency and, yeah. and it's just, it's not even about the world or the magic or, or the characters. It's about, oh, I can revisit this at a regular, you know, yeah. kind of intervals. Um, but then you have the other super fans that, you know, are, you know, that still have, I don't know, that still podcast about name of the wind. Yes, like, right, right. Yes. Exactly. You know, there's, yeah. there's, the, there's the two different types of super fans. Yes. Ab- no, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's yeah, sort of wild. I was talking to my girlfriend about this the other day, actually. And she was like, she was, uh, reading Joe Abercrombie. Um, mm-hmm. and she was like, he's kind of too good for me to want to read today. And I was like, what do you mean he's too good? And she's like, I just feel like the book deserves a level of attention that I don't want to bring to a book today. She's like, I want to read yeah. something that is the equivalent of like just turning my brain off or putting my brain on automatic. And uh, that was like, I was like, oh, huh. Because I, I don't feel like I have that desire. But I think that I scratch that itch. She doesn't really watch TV and I watch TV. So mm-hmm. I think I scratch that itch through TV. I'll often watch TV that I think is kind of, not that great, but I'm like, I just needed that, you know, for tonight. And, uh, 
I think she gets that through books. So that's that was like sort of an interesting perspective for me. I, I do that with video games um, uh-huh. where yeah. my my mood shifts. And there's there's sometimes that I want a video game that is incredibly intense that mm-hmm. requires every ounce of my ability and focus yeah. and that is going to eat my soul for like eight days straight. Sometimes that's what I want. Yeah. And, but then there's other times where I'm just like, okay, give me something that I can, I'll have a podcast playing in the background. Yeah. I'm totally mindless. I'm, you know, I'm probably thinking about one of my books while at the same time. Um, and really my, like, kind of, it depends on what my mood is and, And then sometimes I'll be playing a really interesting, cool game and I'll get up the next morning and I'll be like, well, I don't really have any due dates. I don't, I could spend all day playing this game again, but I'm not in that mood. I'd write, I'd like something that's more, you know, mindless or dumb or, or maybe I'll just go and garden, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. No, it's interesting. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to hear from the fans who go to my books for mindless entertainment. <laughs> I I always um, I try to get ahead of that by by describing my books as kind of popcorn epic fantasy. Yeah, there you um, go. Yeah, yeah. You know, because th- then I just own it. And then if somebody yeah. says, if somebody says, "Oh, Brian's plots are really complex and his ideas are highbrow," then I can go, "Oh, well, that's great. I'm awesome." Uh, and if they say, well, it's all just dumb fun, then I can just agree with it. Yeah, yeah there you go. That's good. I like that. I, I like how you front run that. That's wise. <laughs> yeah. You just got to, you got to get ahead of that kind of thing, at yes. least in your own brain, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, do you, uh, this is a, a thing that has really evolved for me over the years. How much attention do you pay to kind of the reviews and reception of your books? Like, how do you interact with all that? Um, you know, the first couple of years of my career, I think. I was incredibly engaged, like yeah, like same. weekly checking of Goodreads re- score, of Amazon score, of new reviews, etc. And then I think it was maybe after the first trilogy was finished, I just kind of stopped. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it was a conscious decision. I just didn't look anymore. And I and and weirdly, like I do that with the I did that I did that for the first four months or so of the podcast. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That came back. Of, of going, okay, I'm going to check and see what the new reviews are and all that stuff. Yeah. And I finally reached the point of like, ah, I don't really care. I'm, I'm doing it for fun. Yeah. And with the books, like, honestly, it's, and this is a, another thing that's maybe paints me as a little bit uh, artistically bankrupt. Honestly, it's the, it's the, um, the, uh, the reports that I get to make sure that I'm going to be able to pay my bills next year. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like that's what matters to me. Yeah. You know, if, if some person, you know, in the middle of nowhere reads my book and gives it one star and hates, it, hates yeah. my guts for every reason. Yeah. I just can't care about that. It's not going to affect my life in any way, but, but you know what, if I, if I sold an extra 5,000 copies and it looks like the royalties are going to be able to continue to pay the mortgage and the car payment and all that stuff. Yeah. That makes that, that makes my year. Right. That's the business right there. Yep. Yeah. 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 I mean, how do you, how do you feel about that kind of stuff? No, I'm very much like you see again, I should have just called you and said, how am I going to feel about reviews in a year? And uh, just got looked into my crystal crystal ball. Um, except I, I will say I get some value. I don't really look at, um, Goodreads or Amazon reviews, except like once or twice a year, I'll read them all at once. Mm-hmm. Doing that just lets me see kind of some of the trends. You know, if you, if you read mm-hmm. them in dribs and drabs the way I used to with the first book or second book, it's sort of like one day everybody loves your book and you feel great. And the next day everybody hates your book and you feel bad. Um, and you're not really getting any useful information. Whereas if you read, you know, whatever, 300 reviews at once, I feel like I come away with a real sense of like kind of the gestalt of how, how it, how it landed, right? Like you see like, oh, people weren't really into that one plot line or people really loved this thing or, you know what I mean? People think that my handling of this is great, but my handling of this is not so great. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of interesting to me. Um and that's, I found that to be a little bit useful and something that I, helps to inform how I approach writing. I don't always agree, but you know, if I'm also not sort of precious about it and when I feel that a lot of people are noticing something, it's pretty easy for me to be like, oh yeah, that was, that wasn't awesome. Maybe I can make it slightly more awesome the next time around. Yeah. I, I, uh, definitely, 
I, I think that there's, because the predominant wisdom is, has usually been, don't read your reviews, right? That's what they always tell you. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think what you're talking about is actually really smart as a writer. Like it's because you're in your own head, you're alone in your office all the time. Yeah. You often only really talk to your agent and editor and even then not that often. So there's there's a lack of self-awareness that can go from just not having outside stimuli and input. Totally. Like, like for me, and, and this is an example I've talked about a few times on the podcast, for me, it was, um, you know, starting to read reviews of Promise of Blood, who all that all complained about uh, not enough female characters. Sure. And, and having not even really when I wrote Promise of Blood, that just never came up in my head. And, yeah. and it was just never really a thing. And then suddenly it's like, oh, there's readers that expect like gender parity and and not and I'm not saying this in a bad way. It's literally like part of my job to try to reach more people and to try to be more inclusive and interesting to a wider range of humans. Yeah. Right. Um, I like how I said humans there as if I'm an alien trying to figure this out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I, think I, I agree. But uh, it's and it's. Um... You know, it's yeah, it's just blind spots that you have, I think, as an author where you just you think that something is clear. You think you've done something or. Yeah. And if you're like, oh, yeah, there is all this other stuff that like I could do and is kind of cool and sort of interesting. So I think it's kind of useful in that way. But that's why I try and take it in big chunks instead of like getting into the opinion of like, you know, every, you know, Tom Jones from wherever thinks that. Yeah, you are idiot um which i don't think is very useful right and i think that's smart I, I like the idea of just doing it in chunks and saying okay i'm gonna i'm gonna educate myself about what my audience yeah is is enjoying and hating and and maybe wants to see more of and all that stuff well because i also think that when people tell you you know so it's, it's like it's often your agent or your editor right it's like you don't need to read your reviews i think they're just worried that you can't you're not you're gonna be one of those writers who can't hold your shit together right and yeah, yeah. you're either going to you're either going to respond to a review or you're going to stop writing or like some like the, the upside is limited and the downside is, is pretty significant. The potential downside. But I think if you're able to do it, there is some, something there that's useful. Yeah, I, I think that um, I think that my my editor uh, figured out quite a while ago that I. I I have gut responses that are emotional, just like any other writer. Uh-huh. But that if you give me like a week to funk, like just process through it, yeah, I'm probably going to just come around and agree with you. Yeah, and so and so like she'll she'll just she'll she'll be the incredibly blunt about things. Yeah, and I'll be like, oh, that's not true. There's no way. Come on. Yeah. and then yeah. like I'll get off the phone and like sometimes it's even later that night i'll be like ah crap she's right yeah yeah oh yeah yeah i mean with empire's ruin i don't i don't know if you know this story i had written it this this is the three hundred thousand word book well i'd written a different three hundred thousand word book and um tor had sent me a check for it and hannah my agent called up and she was like brian this book isn't good like oh really But so you had already turned it in. It's like Friday night. I was in bed. I was like reading in bed. And and she was like, yeah, like, and she went through all the things that weren't good about it. And she was like, I've been trying to think if like you can fix these things. If there's like an easy fix. She's like, I don't, doesn't seem fixable. And, uh, but like we had the money, right? We had the money from tour for the book. Yeah. She was like, so what do you want? Do you, you want to like send the money back or what do you want to do? And I was like, yeah, I guess we got to send the money back and I'll write it again. <laughs> so, and so that would have been your on delivery payment. Yeah. That was the on delivery payment. So you, so, so they accepted the book and they then did. your agent came to you privately and said, this is probably not your best work. Exactly. Oh, that's, that is rough. I see because my my it was not my favorite moment. It was she was right. I mean, she was totally right. I mean, it didn't even take me a week. I, first that conversation, I was like, "Yeah, no, this is all true." I I had to do that with um, Sins of Empire, book one of the second Powder Mage trilogy. See, book one, see, is my book one of my second trilogy? I should just always ask you. So tell what's your story? The book one of the book one of the second trilogy was just so hard. Like yeah. I had 
I I went in and I I had kind of I so I wrote I think it was around 180 190,000 words. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite finished. I did, I didn't have the climax yet. Yeah. Um and I sent it to my but the the due date was there and so I said, "Okay, here's what I've got. It probably shouldn't take me more than a few weeks to finish it up." Um and my my editor read it and came back to me and said, "This isn't very good." <laughs> and yeah. Like it just very bluntly, like yeah. this isn't very good. Like she was, she was trying to let me down easy. Yeah. And I went to my agent about it. Cause I freaked out when she told uh-huh. me that. Yeah. Um, and I went to my agent and my agent was actually quite played the good guy on that one. She was uh-huh. like, she was like, well, okay. You know what? I read it over the weekend as well. I think it's better than she thinks it is. Uh, it'll take work, but we can get it there. And, but then she ended that conversation by saying, take a few weeks even a few months if you have to, and just think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did. I thought about it for a couple of weeks and and finally went back to uh, to my my editor and said, I think I have to rewrite this from scratch. Yeah, that's... And my editor responded with, oh, thank God, I didn't want to tell you. Yeah. Like that kind of... And, and I did. And I think I rewrote it in four and a half months. Holy shit, man. And, and, what, and what I finished is is almost the draft that went into the book like it like it it, it wow. the rewrite came out super quick it was it felt amazing yeah yeah but man that that moment though of, of being told yeah well once sometimes that feeling like i just wrote a book and it's no good yeah like like a, a year you know nine months to 16 months of your life are you know you're just gone Darn. like that is Oh, it's such a horrible feeling. But I think it would be a much worse feeling uh, to publish a bad book. Yeah, and I I agree with that. You know, I'm I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I did not publish that book um, because you can't take it back, right? There's no take backs, and uh, mm-hmm. you don't want that book out there and having people be like, "Well, Brian McClellan, you know, his first trilogy was good, but the new one." Especially the first book of a trilogy. Oof. Holy shit! Like that is my terror of is like publishing the first book of a trilogy that just flops. And then you're like, well, what, what do you do? You know, you got readers who want the rest of the trilogy, but you're like tied to this dead animal. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's ter- It's all terrifying, right? The first book of a trilogy is terrifying for that reason. The last book of a trilogy is terrifying because you don't want to fuck it up. The middle book is terrifying because middle books are hard. Like it's all, hard. it's all scary. It's all just scary. <laughs> we should just go stack wood. Right. <laughs> well, there's so many moments at which you can fail, right? Like as an author. Yes. Yes. It, and in different ways, in different ways. Yeah. I, I thought, you know, I was really taken aback by how hard it was to write that first book of the second trilogy, because I think in general, beginnings are much easier than endings because you can just, you just throw some mysteries in there. It's like the Lost principle. Remember that TV show Lost? Yeah. Right? Where they would just put some random shit in. They'd be like, oh, there's a pirate ship on a mountain. And and we were all like, oh, I kind of wonder why that pirate ship is on the mountain. Right? They're like, there's a there's a manhole in the ground. And there's like maybe people down there. And they're like, oh, I kind of wonder what's under the manhole. And you can just do that so easily in a first book. And because humans are curious creatures, I'm joining you with your alien perspective now. Yeah. Um, because humans are curious creatures, they're going to want to know what happens. And then you, 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 know, you have to pay the piper in later books. And they're like, wait, you didn't have an idea for that pirate ship on the mountain, did you? And you're like, no, sorry. Um, but yes, for some reason, this first book of the new trilogy just kicked my ass up and down the street. It, it, that happened to me too. And it was just... I don't know, because I, I feel like maybe, at least personally, it was like there was a level of arrogance going into it of like, mm-hmm. I've done a whole trilogy. That's, I mean, I've written, I've published 600,000 words. Yeah. I am an old hand at this now. I'm a pro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I can do this. No biggie. Yeah. And then realizing that you've got a whole different set of problems, especially because, and you're, uh, you're in the same situation, I believe, where you're writing a second trilogy in a, the same universe. Mm-hmm. and and so you're trying to deal with all the problems of of a new series, but with all the baggage of an old series. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it it becomes this complex puzzle that you did not expect. Yep, that was exactly my experience. See, I really anything bad that happens to you, Brian, I just want you to shoot me an email or a text or something. <laughs> really, I mean, I was sort of joking at the beginning, but this is eerie about the sins of empire. Empire's Ruin comparison. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I just feel like it, it's honestly, it's it's very funny. My my agent and I have talked about this several times about you know the they're very amused by the Bryans and their parallel 
careers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I hope it continues because it seems like things are going well for you. So that just means maybe I have some some uh, runway in my future. I mean, get back to me, you know, two months after this first book in the new series comes out. Okay, all right. We'll see how things are really going. Okay, excellent. That was author Brian Stavely. Thanks so much to Brian for taking the time to chat. You can find links to Brian's website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon. 